0: If you're a pop culture junkie who loves TV, film, music, comedy, and other really important stuff, then you've come to the right place. Get ready and settle in for Classic Conversations, the best pop culture interviews in the world. That's right. We circled the globe so you don't have to. If you're ready to be the king of the water cooler, then you're ready for Classic Conversations with your host, Jeff Twaskin. All right, Catherine, thank you so much for that amazing introduction. You get the show going each and every week, and this week is super special. Welcome, everybody, to episode 200 of Classic Conversations. As always, I am your host, Jeff Duoskin, bringing you the classicest of conversations. And for episode 200, we have pulled out all the stops. We're going full comedic icon from SCTV, Strange Brew. That's right, Doug McKenzie himself, Dave Thomas, is here to help us celebrate 200 amazing episodes. And this episode is jam-packed with so many stories. I'm so excited to share this interview with you. Dave Thomas and I dive deep into his career, SCTV, and so much more. You are going to love this. I am going to get to it right now. Coming at you straight from the Great White North, Dave Thomas. Enjoy. All right. My next guest, actor, comedian, director, author, writer, loved him on SCTV, Strange Brew, Grace Under Fire, the new show, author of the book, The Many Lies of Jimmy Layton. Everybody, welcome to the show. The legend himself, Dave Thomas. Welcome to the show.
1: Thanks. Pleasure to be here.
0: Dave, so excited to uh, to talk to you. It's, uh, it's always a thrill to talk to someone who I've who's always kind of been there my whole life. And I've just, I've always been a huge fan. So thank you for spending some time with me. I'm
1: like the queen, Great Britain, who just died, unfortunately, at 96. I've been around a long time.
0: You are royalty.
1: (laughs) I don't know about royalty, but old for
0: sure. Let's talk about your your book real quick. The Many Lies of Jimmy Layton.
1: So available on Amazon. I wrote this. It's a quantum mystery. I wrote it with Max Allen Collins, who wrote Road to Perdition. And he's a very famous novelist. It came about purely coincidental. It was an idea that I had. I had written three chapters. Max asked to read them. And when he read them, he said, I I would like to work with you on this book. And that was a no-brainer for me because he was an accomplished novelist. And I had never written a single novel. So it was win-win for me. So we wrote it during COVID on Zoom. It came out, it's on Amazon, and I think it's a fun read. All right. Here's the, the thumbnail of it. Sure. A petty thief from South Boston named Jimmy Layton is on the run from a Vietnamese drug lord. He owes him 5,000 bucks. Goes across the river to Harvard, gets a Harvard sweatshirt, tries to blend in with the student crowd, but he needs money. By occupation, he's a second story man. So he breaks into a house, but he breaks into the wrong house. It's the house of a physics professor who's doing a quantum experiment in his basement. And Jimmy puts the two cables connecting quantum batteries together. And they become the steering wheel of a car in Chicago, a thousand miles away, in a different version of his life. And then Jimmy starts hopping around from one version of his life to another, trying to get back. And simultaneously, the cops find his body. Well, he's still alive in a coma. But the cops find him in there. He's been shot in the head in the basement of this physicist and they are trying to trace it back through the world of sort of academic physics. And why would somebody shoot this guy and what's the deal? And so those two stories have to converge by the end of the book.
0: That book sounds amazing.
1: It's different. That's for sure.
0: It's funny. You, you mentioned this is your first novel, right? And it's like, you seem to be a king of like doing things well right out of the gate, like about what I know about you. Right. So you got it. That's how you got into advertising. You, you wrote some ads. You got into advertising. Strange brew. We need a director. You directed all great outcomes. You know, everything that you seem to touch turns to gold.
1: I was better at it when I was younger. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I still want to do it. I still want to work. I still have ideas rattling around in my brain that I have to put down on paper, and hopefully you sell, get somebody to finance. That's the hard
0: part. Just getting somebody behind it.
1: Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a different world out there today. Very difficult.
0: Let's talk about one of your other big ones, which are the mutants of 2051 AD. Okay. Set <laughs> 10 years after World War Four. This is not, yeah, The Many Lives is not your first, first foray. No,
1: that was the beginning of this sort of, the beginning of Strange Group. Uh, what I personally loved about that little sci-fi was that we were showing it bob and doug the characters were showing their movie in a theater and then to disrupt their own movie and originally it was bees it became moths but they release moths in the theater that freaks out the audience and causes the audience to stampede out and they destroy the premiere of their own movie I thought that was a good way to begin a film.
0: I thought it was a great way to begin a film. I rewatched it recently. I mean, I can't even remember the amount of times I've watched Strange Brew. It's just one of those. I think growing up, it was just, it was always on. Also, it was just, I mean, I can't. The one thing that kind of always stuck in my head was Rick, Bob, you know, after drinking all the beer. It was, oh, <laughs> yeah. And then putting out the fire.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> that was too fun.
1: My favorite line in the movie is in the courtroom where... Paul Dooley is being cross examined, and he refers to a videotape of Bob and Doug. And it's actually Max Fuencito and Paul Dooley dressed up in the Tukes and Parkers as Bob and Doug. And he says, You'll note on the video that clearly shows Bob and Doug as the, as the shooters that there's a time code on there. And time code is very hard to fake. And the judge says, For the benefit of the court, Will you please explain what time code is? And Paul Dooley kind of leans back and glazes over it. He says, Well, just because I don't know what it is, doesn't mean I'm lying. <laughs> I love that line. I was so proud of that. Stupid, stupid line.
0: That was a hilarious scene. And then the the cuts to the cuts to Max Vaughn too. Yeah, um, yeah. Reacting to that. <laughs> Oh man! Oh, uh, I remember when I was uh, just rewatching it. I, one of the things you got a nosebleed in it, and you shove these things up your nose to stop it. And the reason I thought that was funny is because that's what I do. That's when I get nosebleeds. That's literally how I have to stop a nosebleed. <laughs> I jam it up there. <laughs> just have to walk around. It's like I get the worst nosebleed. So I'm sitting there rewatching, it and I'm like, oh my god.
1: Well, I'll tell you something. This is a behind the scenes story about that. The joke was that I sneeze and the bullets shoot out of my nose and then ricochet around the courtroom. So that's the joke. And I say to the special effects, guy, we had the the worst special effects guy. And I said to the special effects guy, this big, it was a big metal microphone in front of me, one of the old RCA mics from the radio days. And I said, when I sneeze, where's that microphone going to go? I noticed you were squibbing various parts around the room, and you're putting squibs there. And he said, this is the stunt coordinator to, or a special effects coordinator to the actor. And he says, well, that microphone is going to go down. I said, well, it has to go down because when I sneeze, I'm going to be doing what everyone does when they sneeze. My head's going to go forward like that. So my head's going to be going down. And he said, there is no way that microphone is coming up. It's set to go. It will go down and away from you. I said, "Okay." So we do the tape. I blow the things out of my nose. The squibs go off. And the microphone comes right up. Hits me in the forehead and knocks me out. (laughs) That's the kind of stuff that happened on that set all the time. And that's why actors get hurt, you know? They get hurt doing shows because, you know, the director will say, oh, it's just, you're just going to do the roll-in after the stunt guy will do up, and then you just do the roll-in. And the reality of it is sometimes the roll-ins can be really tough.
0: You never know. You know, everything can be dangerous. So, you know... (laughs) You wouldn't think about it, but yeah, you're right.
1: Here's another example of that when I was doing Boris and Natasha, there was a joke where Sally Kellerman and I run up the stairs, and there's a guy we're chasing a guy, and then he dives, he goes out the window and gives on a fire on a on a fire escape, and he's got a substantial lead on us. So she looks out the window, and Natasha looks at me, and she says, "Oh, Boris, you're never going to get him now." And I said, "I got it covered," and I just literally jump out the window and fall like eight stories on the pavement, and then get up and go after the guy. Well, there was supposed to be a like a fire escape facade of the building at ground level. So I would be jumping off the fire escape basically about a foot below where I was. So when I get to the set that day, I'm looking at the uh, set, and I see there's a scissor lift, a big one, it goes up about six or eight stories. And there's an airbag on the top of the uh, on a platform on the top of the scissor lift. And I look at that and I said to the director, Charlie Martin Smith, I said, what the fuck is that for? Because I had a, a clue. He said, well, the fake facade didn't arrive. So what we're hoping is that you'll just jump out the window of that building onto the scissor lift. And I said, I'm not doing that. Are you out of your mind? I said, what if I catch my foot on the on the window and then just fall eight stories to my death? You know, he said, Well, we're gonna have guys there. And I said, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, after a lot of pressure and cajoling and everything, I finally said, Yeah, okay, I'll do it. So I jump out the window and then it was an airbag, and I I I jumped out and then bounced back up into frame. (laughs) So I go through frame and then come back up into frame. And Charlie said, uh We got the airbag too high. We need to do it again. I said, forget it. I'm not doing it again. I said, you just got to cut out of there fast and cut out before I bounce back up into frame and go to your next shot. So
0: it's a cartoon, a live action cartoon. Of course, you're supposed to bounce back into the frame. (laughs) That's right. Oh, man, that's hilarious. So I was doing some research on Strange Brew. Was yeah. was there an originally a sequel? Not. I know you did eventually the animated spinoff, a sequel Homebrew as well. Yeah,
1: yeah. And it, I got I lost a lot of money in that because I financed pre production, and then this our producing partners were supposed to get the financing for the film. Literally three days before principal photography. No, two days. The Friday before we're supposed to start shooting on the Monday. I get a call and the money's fallen through. They got no money, and I have to shut the whole thing down. And I've already p- paid like seven hundred fifty thousand, close to a million bucks in pre-production costs myself. Ouch! And I say, guys, come on, you got to come up with this book. And they, two of them, were lawyers. And I called my lawyer, and because we all we had all the paperwork and everything, he said, "Yeah," he said, "This is as close to." criminal as you can get, but we're never going to make a criminal thing stick. So I had to shut anything down. Sets were built. Cast was in, rehearsed, all ready to go on Monday. and I had to tell everybody to go home. That was pretty terrible. That was not a fun weekend uh, for me. And I came home. I remember getting off the plane, just depressed as hell. And my wife meets me and I said, we might have to sell the house. And she said, I don't care. She said, All the things we like to do don't cost anything anyway. Don't worry about it. And she said, let's just go grab something. How does a guy luck out and find a woman like that? So bad luck, you know, in the showbiz portion of my life. Good luck in the personal portion.
0: Yeah, wife sounds like an angel.
1: Yeah, she is still. Sorry to bring that up. No, that's fine. But I mean, it it was an interesting idea. Dan Aykroyd was in the cast and... We had a good cast of really good Canadian actors. And the characters that appeared in the animated show were actually characters that were part of that script. We had to create a reality for Bob and Doug because Bob and Doug only appeared on their set as two characters doing presentational stuff direct to camera. What goes on in the background? So we had to create a whole reality for them. Like, why did they live together? Are they gay? And are their parents still alive? Do they live in the family house? Do they have any brothers or sisters? Do they have any family members? So we had to create all that reality for the movie. And then that became the starting point of creating the reality for the animated show.
0: Okay, so the plot of them becoming Garbage Men and stuff like that was originally meant for Homebrew, and then that became...
1: Yeah, that's right. I thought it was a good idea for them to have jobs where they would pick up trash and find things that they thought were valuable and that their whole (laughs) house was furnished with trash you know with stuff that they repaired or cobbled together or pulled out of the trash that other people didn't want
0: and uh dave couye local guy for me he He did uh, the
1: the voice of bob because rick didn't do it
0: all right well at least at least you were able to use the the homebrew concept for that animated feature so that's pretty cool yeah Sorry to interrupt, but we have to take a quick break. I want to thank everyone for their support of the sponsors. When you support the sponsors, you're supporting us here at Classic Conversations, and that's how we keep the lights on. And now we're back to my spectacular conversation with Dave Thomas. We're still talking about Strange Brew and landing Mel Blanc as the voice of Bob and Doug McKenzie's father. And we're back. Let's see. So Mel Blanc, he was your father in that
1: (laughs) Yeah, he was the voice of Bugs Bunny, Davy Duck, this amazing guy from the 40s of American radio. And he was one of my, I I idolized that guy. I thought his voice was just amazing. So when we created the characters of our parents, I had this idea for a shot of him just watching TV. And then I thought, well, really, we're not going to see Lip Flap. So it could be anyone's voice. Then it occurred to me that it, the mel blank and then when we got him to do it that was great except his rate back then was pretty pricey this is in 1981 mel's rate was ten thousand dollars an hour wow so the producer guy by the name of jack grossberg went to the president of mgm freddie fields and said yeah we got mel blank for this and uh and president of mgm said well, how much is it going to cost and he said uh Ten thousand an hour—that's his rate. He said, "I'm not paying ten thousand an hour to anybody. Get somebody else to do the boys." And by now, I was—I had in my head that we had to have Mel. So I said to Jack, "We got to get Mel." Jack said, "Don't worry, I'll take care of it." How are you going to take care of it? The head of the studio just said that he won't pay ten thousand an hour. So Jack says, "I'm going to tell him." that we need Mel for three hours, and I'm getting a deal. We're going to get him for three hours for 10000 Do you think you can get him in and out in an hour? I said, yeah. Yeah, he only has like four lines or something like that. So Jack said, all right. So then we got Mel Blank. (laughs) And Jack went to the studio, the president studio, and he said, I got a deal on Mel Blank. He said, I told you not to use him. He said, hey, I got him to cut his rate to (laughs) one-third. The president of the studio said, oh. Oh, okay, that's good. That's good. That's a deal. All right. Good work.
0: Dave Thomas, deal maker. <laughs> well, it was
1: actually the producer that made the deal, but, but I got the value out of it.
0: <laughs> I read that all the major breweries wanted to sponsor you, but your the joke about the mouse in the bottle <laughs> ended up getting them to not want to be connected to the film. Does that sound right?
1: Absolutely right. In the, I should have known this, too. Because I was a copywriter for Coca-Cola. In the brewing and the bottling business, they call a rodent in a bottle a passenger. That's one of those kind of trade euphemisms, like airlines calling a mid-air collision a conflict, you know, where... Right.
0: Friendly fire.
1: People are, like, literally vaporized out of existence, like they were never here. That's a little more than a conflict. <laughs> and <laughs> so... They don't like passengers in the in the bottling and the brewing business, so they said, you got to take that out. And I was like, no, that's our big joke. We're not taking that out. So in Canada, they controlled not just the breweries but also the beer stores where you buy your beer. In Canada, you couldn't at that time you couldn't buy your beer in the supermarket. You can now. Canada was still a Scottish Nazi empire back then, and you had to buy your beer at a Beer store. And the beer stores were all owned by the large breweries. So they shut us out of the beer store, too. So we not only couldn't use a brewery, we couldn't use a beer store. And then, ironically, I don't know, it was like 10 years later or something, 15 years later, they hire Rick and me to launch Molson's in the U.S. But it wasn't the the Canadian brewers. It was um, Miller. It was the president of Miller Brewing in the States who had got the rights to Bottle and release Molson's in the U.S. He said he wanted to use the uh, McKenzie brothers.
0: That's how we got.
1: So the, it was like you know, shut out in 1982, brought back in in 1998.
0: There you go. Time heals all wounds. <laughs> the uh, I read that A is 174 times in Strange Brew. Question though is, is that how many times it appears in the script, or was everyone just free to use it as well at will?
1: Oh. I don't know. I never counted that. I didn't hear that. It's 174, is it?
0: Yeah, that's what I read. And then, but my the question, my question is, is it in the script or is that just a Canadian thing you add on? You just well, know to add on.
1: <laughs> let me put it this way. Some of them would have been in the script, but not 174, that's for sure. Because <laughs> there was some improv there too. Okay? So we would have done improv. God.
0: uh on ourselves. Never a bad time for an A. Oh, so you mentioned you're a Coca-Cola writer for, and uh, that was for McCann Erickson. Yeah, interestingly, so you went, you went to college with Eugene Levy and Martin Short, right? And then they got you in the or They convinced you to audition and and become part of Godspell, which had a ridiculously talented cast. Eugene Levy, Martin Short, Gilda Radner, Andrea Martin, Paul Schaefer, musical director.
1: Victor Garber.
0: Oh, Victor yeah. Garber. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. And so from there, now, if is this where you kind of got the the bug, where you wanted to kind of act? and?
1: Oh, yeah. But after Godspell, I couldn't get another job as an actor. And I wasn't going to be a, a waiter that told everyone he's an actor. So I tried for a couple of months to get a gig. And I didn't. And then I thought, well, screw this. I'd been editor of the student paper and there was a little, it had a little publishing setup. So I went back to the student paper and I wrote up and printed up some fake ads. I just got pictures out of magazines and then made up a product and copy for it. And then I did some fake TV scripts and some fake radio scripts, put a little package together. And then back then we had yellow pages, no internet. I just went through the yellow pages, calling every ad agency and setting up meetings with the creative directors. Got a lot of doors slammed in my face because I went through everything until I got to the M's at McCann Erickson, and then I got hired. So at first, they put me on the Coca-Cola account, which I thought was kind of cool Till I found out what I was going to be doing, which is the retail print ads, which is probably one of the shittiest jobs in advertising because it's all on sale this week, you know, two for one, things like that. It's just terrible, terrible, and not good for writing at all. But one of the things I had to do in that retail writing job for Coca Cola was a contest called Capital Caps. And the premise of the contest was they they had people would pop a bottle of, pop the cap off a bottle of Coca Cola, peel it back, and then there'd be, you won $10,000 or something underneath the. So it was a promotion. So I had to write a spot for it, and Coca-Cola is a very litigious company, especially for off-brand stuff like a contest. They gave me 28 and a half seconds of legal copy for a 30-second spot, which is just like, thanks a lot. So I remember this bit that Don Knotts used to do on um, The Tonight Show, a weatherman, with a bunch of charts that he pulled down, breakaway pointers and things like that. And the premise was that the sheer volume – of what he had to tell was too complicated for him to be able to do it. And that was a similar problem that I had, where I had 28 and a half seconds of legal copy that somebody had to get through. So I made that the joke, and I had charts and breakaway pointers and things like that. I pitched it to the creative director, Ken, and he said, nah, we can't send this script to Coca-Cola. They're not going to know how to read it. They'll never do it. He said, you have to go up there and pitch it to them live. And if they see you pitching it, they'll think it's funny then. So I said, okay. So I went up to Coke and I pitched it. And then the president of Coca-Cola Canada said, who do you want to be in this? And I said, Tim Conway. Just thinking, as a dream, he would be a fabulous guy. Well, within two weeks, I was on a plane to L.A. to shoot this spot with Tim Conway. And Tim did such a funny job on it that... It won awards and it was like the promotion was a huge success. Then Coca-Cola said to McCann, fire the head writer of Coca-Cola Canada and make this guy the head writer. So now I'm only in advertising for three months. So I'm now the head writer of Coca-Cola Canada. And so they were doing their own lifestyle spots then, which is kind of advertising Coca-Cola does, the inobtrusive placement of the bottle in Thanksgiving dinner scenes and things like that. People will associate it. With good times, anyway, I did a couple of those spots, and the president of Buchanan in New York saw one of my spots, and he said, "I like that spot. Get that guy down here. I want to give him a couple things to do." So now I'm in New York, and their offices weren't on Madison Avenue; they were on Lexington. And I remember this office; it was just palatial. It was uh, these beautiful rugs, a grand piano, and everything. And there's this little guy in a gray suit with a string tie, like like a young Colonel Sanders. And this is Bill Backer, the creative director of McCann Erickson Worldwide. And he's the big guy for Coca-Cola. He wrote, I want to teach the world to sing that mountaintop commercial
0: with all the kids.
1: And he came up with the slogans, things go better with Coke, and it's the real thing, Coke. So this guy's a legend. But I'm sitting in his office, and I don't know what to say. He starts quoting Shakespeare. Why is only a year out of college? And I... I I well Shakespeare was one of my majors when I did the master's degree. So I thought, okay, he's quoting Shakespeare. I can quote you. So I started quoting Shakespeare back to him. Well, he loved it. That was just suddenly I was his golden boy because I could quote Shakespeare. So he says to me, do you know how to write a jingle? And have you ever written a jingle? That's what he said. In advertising, you don't say no because then you're out. So I said, yeah, yeah, sure. I've written a lot of jingles. He said, all right, write me a jingle. Keep it light and fun and up. Just going to have a bunch of kids drink Coca-Cola. So think of something fun for that. So I came up with a fun jingle, and he loved it. He got Billy Davis, who was like a serious musician. He was part of Marilyn McCoo and Billy Davis. When I told Paul Schaefer that Billy Davis was writing the music for my McCann jingle, Paul flipped out. He said, holy shit, how would you get to work with Billy Davis? So then the spot wins a Cleo which is the Ameri- the sort of Oscars of advertising. But Bill Backer takes all the credit for it. Just said he wrote it. Like My name never came up once. But, you know, I was doing pretty good, and I kept asking for raises and getting them. So then I heard about Second City. I heard they were opening Second City in Toronto, and I went up to check it out. And it was great. It was like what I really wanted to do, but they already had a cast, so I missed the first shot at it. But then I'm back in New York doing another spot for Bill Backer. Then I get a call from Eugene Levy and he says, They're changing the cast. There's a couple of openings. You got to get up here in addition right away. Now, Eugene had got me into Godspell too. Well, Eugene and Marty, but mostly Eugene. And now Eugene's getting me into Second City. So I go down in addition and I got in. Now I'm in Second City on the stage show with Dan Aykroyd, Gilda Radner, and John Candy and Andrea Martin. It was just. Amazing, and then they left. Some of them left. Gilda and Danny left for SNL. That was back in seventy-five. Bernie songs the guy who ran Second City, said, "Let's do our own show." And I said, "I remember seeing him. Well, there already is a sketch comedy show in late night. It's a huge hit. <laughs> well, what do you want to do? Like create a low-budget failure of a show to supposedly compete, go head to head with SNL?" And he goes. We're going to do our own show. So you wouldn't listen. And so they launched SCTV. And the early shows, I think the budget for the early shows was $7,000 a show. That's everything. That's all the actors, all the scripts, wow. props, the sets, the makeup, the hair. 7000 I mean, that makes sort of... Internet indie stuff looked like high rollers, you know. So, oh my
0: god, yeah, seven thousand. It's not. I mean, that's that's barely uh, lunch. <laughs> yeah,
1: and we had Harold Ramis for our head writer, and Harold said, "No, no, we had, we can make this work for ourselves. We'll just make the sort of cheapness and low budget nature of this something that is the charm of the show." So, and he was right; that actually did work.
0: That's what I remember. You lean into it and, uh, right, fictitious TV network. Just, try, yep. just trying to make it work. <laughs> so this original cast, the original cast of SCTV. Well, well, f- well, first, let me let me ask you, when just doing Second City at Toronto, how long did you get to work with Aykroyd and Gilda before they went to SNL?
1: Probably I was on stage six nights a week, two shows Friday, two shows Saturday, and improvising after all the shows about six months maybe nine months with Dan before we went to SNL. And then Dan was a real entrepreneur. And when he found out that I was from advertising, he said, "Uh, David, um, can you write retail spots? Because, you know, uh, I did a a performance for one of them. And these guys at Eddie's Stereo love me. And, you know, and I said, yeah, I said, Sure. And he said, Oh, how much can we get for that? And I said, Well, there's a guy going around right now as a sort of a special comedy guy selling his stuff. And he doesn't have the creds that we have in comedy. And he gets a thousand bucks a spot. Dan said, Oh, great, great, great. Let's do that. Let's so we're making hundred and forty-five a week in the stage show. And a thousand bucks a spot for a radio spot plus the union stuff if we got to perform. That was really good. So Danny and I started writing spots for um advertising and then we got a then we got hired to write for a kids show for CBC and a couple other writing gigs but we started writing together so we did Second City State show at night and then wrote during the day and then we wrote a, a sci-fi story together that we started before he left for SNL and then I remember when he was doing SNL he said I got a week off the show's down for a week he said can you meet me in Dallas?" And I said, sure. And he said, because they, this was a UFO movie that we were writing. And Dan said, the Leveland Lights, just north of Dallas, near Lubbock, Texas, is, there's a people up there that have seen UFOs. We got to go there and talk to them. I said, all right, let's do it. So I met him in Dallas. We took a flight to Lubbock, ran in a car, and then went over to Leveland. We started writing this, and he had to be in Houston by the end of the week to do a show for SNL, uh, like a pre-tape thing. and. So we drove all the way through Texas talking to people who claimed that they'd seen UFOs. And we wrote a script that almost got made. We had a director, like a real director, Phil Alden Robinson, attached as a director. And it almost got made. And then the studio found out Spielberg was doing Close Encounters. That was it. We were dead. Killed it. But Danny and I developed this sort of writing chemistry together. And... Then a couple of years later, I was writing, I'd written some movies by this time. I was writing a a movie for Universal, and I got a call from Dan, and he said, I want you to help me with this movie. I sold him this thing called Spies Like Us, and it's about spies. And he said, "Uh, you're the perfect guy to write it with me. I said, well, I'm on a movie right now. And he said, what studio? And I said, Universal. He said, we can get you off that, I bet. So I said, okay. So... I get a call from Sean Daniel, who's the executive VP at Universal, and he says Dan wants you to work on this movie with him. And I'm working. Meanwhile, I'm working on a script for Joel Silver, the famed Hollywood producer that did Predator and Forty Eight Hours. A bunch sorry, of sorry, sorry. he did a bunch of big movies. And Joel's pissed off that I'm going to be leaving his film now to work with Dan. And then the I got into it. Uh, Argument with the studio about money because I want a lot of money for that. It's like, if you're moving me off one picture to another picture, that's a big deal. I should be able to get paid a lot of money for that. It just seemed like that was fair.
0: Seems reasonable.
1: And they didn't want to do that. And so I held them up. And I remember walking in the back lot on the Western town with Sean Daniel, arguing with him about money. I got it. And then when Dan and I started the script, Danny had a steamer trunk full of books. There are books about Central Asia, U.S. missile capabilities, Soviet missile capabilities, Soviet mobile launchers, satellite technology, things like that. They're all very technical, and uh, but all sort of Cold War books that were leading edge. A lot of them were sort of government publications. And Dan points to this trunk and he says, "David, we got to read every one of these books before we put pen to paper." And I, all right, let's do it. So that was the job. I love Dan and. I've written with him periodically over the years and done stuff with him. He's got, Dan's got contacts in the CIA. And I've done stuff with him and some of his CIA buddies. And he's always been an interesting guy to hang out with because there's always something going on, you know.
0: It seems like it'd be an interesting guy. Was it was it hard for him and Gilda to leave to go to SNL? I mean, now with hindsight, we know, you know those five years are so classic. Yeah,
1: Danny was Danny was very ambivalent about it. He was very conflicted, and it was Belushi that talked him into it. And I remember the phrase Belushi said to Dan: "Dan, Dan, forget forget the provinces. You're you're in Ontario in in Toronto doing a little comedy show. Come to Rome." Come to Rome.
0: Come to Rome.
1: <laughs> he nice. wanted Danny to come to the Coliseum, which was eh, really, I thought, a very fitting and appropriate uh, metaphor for NBC at 30 Rock Center and uh, at that time, you know. So Dan finally went and Gilda went right away. But Danny, Danny was conflicted about
0: it. When you started focusing on SCTV, who became your new writing partners now that Dan was gone?
1: Joe Fleury and I worked a lot together for the first two seasons. And we wrote a couple of things that I thought were really groundbreakingly new and different type of sketches. We did a a Fantasy Island parody that had Fantasy Island, Casablanca, Road to Morocco, and The Wizard of Oz, all as sort of reference threads weaved throughout the sketch. And it moved from the landscape one of those movies to the other. And that had never been done in sketch before. Not on show or shows or laughing or any. So I thought I thought that was really exciting and fun. Then in the third season of the show, Rick Moranis joined the show and then he became my writing partner because we just were so prolific together. Rick came in with a million ideas. He was very fast, very smart, and just wrote like a like a robot. You know, he just, just got so much stuff out. We did this parody of Bob Hope and Woody Allen called Play It Again, Bob. And and we basically improvised that into a tape recorder. And we transcribed it. We had secretaries type it up. But it we actually what was on TV was pretty close to what we originally improvised together. And we started doing duos like that, you know, Hope and Woody Allen. Then we did Cronkite and Brinkley a bunch of times. Then we did other care we did some historical characters like Shakespeare and bacon, shake and bake was our concept. I, my concept of Shakespeare, because I'd done major, you know, I majored in that for my master's and I in English lit. And the Shakespeare was, to me, he wrote for the people of his time. He wrote for the groundlings. And I always had this image that Shakespeare was just, just a sweating weasel, scribbling backstage and, and handing pages to actors just before they were about to go on, that it was that. <laughs> fast and and not at all the sort of literary way that we study it and marvel at the images and things like that. People talk like that back then. It was a different time. Very sort of floral language, very Elizabethan. People had classical educations and could speak, many of them could speak Latin, new references and things like that. So things that we consider unimaginable as writers and we study the literature and revere it, it's like, what if he was just writing it fast for actors and throwing it? And you know, Sir Francis, Sir Francis Bacon got a lot of scholars believe he at, might have actually written the Shakespeare plays. So the idea of him working with Francis Bacon, I thought was hilarious. So Rick was Francis Bacon, and I was Shakespeare, and I played Shakespeare as a weasel writing just stuff back. So we're doing Hamlet. and They're going that the audience is booing and screaming, and I said, get them to do the murder of Gonzago. That's the play within the play in Hamlet. That'll keep them busy for a while till I finish the scene. So it's just (laughs) taking the sort of literary stuff and having fun with it. And we did the same thing. Rick and I did Kite and Brinkley. We did a a version of Murder in the Cathedral with the Mercury 3 players. And the Mercury players were like a repertory company. But we thought it'd be funny if the Mercury 3 players were astronauts in spacesuits And Murder in the Cathedral, this classic British play, was being reenacted by a bunch of astronauts in zero gravity and spacesuits. And so I was guiding the audience through the the play as Walter Cronkite, and Rick was out in the lobby as Brinkley, interviewing the people who got bored with the play and came out to get drunk, which included Joe as Tom Wolfe and Catherine as Catherine Hepburn. I forget who else. But it was like really weird, fun stuff and getting to write with people that were smart, wrote smart stuff. And it just, it was so much fun.
0: Sorry to interrupt, but we have to take a quick break. And we're back with Dave Thomas. It's incredible when you look back when I was kind of researching SCTV again, growing up, I, I probably did not watch episodes in order. So it never occurred to me that, you know, John Candy wasn't in the show, in a season or something like that. Like, cause they would just be out of order. So it's like, maybe I just didn't notice one particular cast member wasn't in a particular show, but then they'd be in the next episode. You know what I mean? So yeah, that first season with Harold Ramis as head writer, the cast, John Candy, Joe Flaherty, Eugene Levy, Andrea Martin, Catherine O'Hara, Harold Ramis and Dave Thomas, you. I, I mean, that's an insane level of talent that a couple of them have passed away, but I mean, that have, that continued to be massive. Ta- I mean, to this day, right. I mean, it's just like, it's crazy when you think about it.
1: Yeah. I knew these were smart, funny people. I mean, you know, and it's weird that they all sort of collected in Toronto of all places in the uh, mid seventies, because I don't know. I mean, there was a, there was a real kind of a, a meaning of second city, National Lampoon, and Godspell. It was like those three shows kind of converged, and people that were in those shows had similar sensibilities. And, you know, I mean, when I was in Godspell, I met Paul Schaefer. Paul's incredibly funny and incredibly sharp. He's got a photographic memory and, a, and an unbelievable comedy reference. And he he could pull up stuff like Nelby's Business and where music was a necessary ingredient. He could get on the piano and improvise stuff on it was just amazing. So he was the musical director of Godspell, but he became part of this of the group of friends that all appreciated each other's comedy. Marty and Eugene and I used to have what Marty called Friday night services, which were like a Marty was taking a shot at (laughs) Eugene being Jewish and it's like (laughs) so tomorrow is the Sabbath. We're going to have Friday night services, but the premise of the Friday night services was just to make each other laugh. And Marty still has tapes, like audio tapes from some of those Friday night services. And we just laughed our heads off. And, you know, we would go and see a movie like The Exorcist and come back and do stuff from it to The Power of Christ. Well, that's why I became obsessed with Max von Siddel. Power of Christ compares you. The power of Christ compelled you, and <laughs> and just this hideous, foul-mouthed little girl that's just talking backwards and making pig noises and doing all kinds of obscene things. That was so hideous that it was funny. Do you know what I mean? Oh. At the time when it came out, I remember driving along Bloor Street. There's a theater on Bloor in Toronto. It was winter, and there was a line of people at the theater, and I I hadn't heard any advance or hype for the exorcist i just saw a line of people there and i said to the girl that i was dating at the time i said we gotta get in that line so we get in the line for the exorcist and you're gonna remember people were different back then they hadn't you know what i mean they hadn't seen all the horrible stuff that we've seen on the internet and things like that Sure, sure. and so i'm in the line and then the previous showing comes out these people were ashen faced and they were like they were traumatized it's like seeing people walking away from a plane crash and i'm like holy shit what is this and people are saying people are throwing up in there they're throwing up and i'm like what so we're the lines moving forward and i'm going why am i getting into here and when i get in there there's this green chemical stuff called dustbane that janders i remember from high school (laughs) used to put to cover up puke they would just dump it on the puke and then shovel it out with a brush you know the whole theater smelled like dustbane and so i'm sitting there and there's a scene that i'll never forget where it's like you hear the whoa, 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 whoa. the daughter in the demo- deep demonic voice of the bed going up and down <laughs> and the mother runs up the stairs and she goes to into the room and reagan is like you know putting a cross in her private parts and and does the head spin around and then and then the door slams shut the bureau goes in front of the door the door falls down on top of the mother and the mother scrambles and then the daughter's head spins around again and the daughter and Reagan in some demonic voice says how do you like your daughter now and I was like I'm sitting there and the girl that I was seeing beside said Dave and I went what she said there's goosebumps on your face and I was like <laughs> So terrified, I was like this, and I had goosebumps (laughs) on my face. And you know, people were in the break between horrible scenes. People were like lighting up because you could smoke in theaters back then. They were lighting up and smoking. It's like and people that didn't smoke were going, "Yeah, yeah, give me a smoke." It was like the trenches. (laughs) You need something to
0: get through that movie, right?
1: (laughs) So when I saw that first, and then I told Eugene Marty they got to see it. Eugene came out of that movie absolutely mortified, and the first thing he said was. That movie should never have been made. He was adamant and just thought it was just an abomination. So we had to go home to back to Marty and Eugene's place and process this. And what better place than Friday night services where we could do impersonations and make fun of it. And I could do Max Sydow, I could do Reagan. And I could, and I had a <laughs> that tape going backwards and things sure. like that, that were an important part of the sort of, Terror, but also something that you could parody. So even as early as that, before we were in SCTV, before when I think Eugene might have been in Second City at that time, I'm not sure, but it was really early on. And we were already into parodying stuff for our own amusement. And then when we get a job where we get to do it for a living, (laughs) I mean how does it get better than that? That's fantastic.
0: So when you, uh, for SCTV, for season three, when you became the head writer, how did you make it your own when Ramis left and, and you took over?
1: Well, I was Harold's unabashed protege. That's how he described me. And he came into the office, he, he was so smart. And I knew, oh my God, this guy, when somebody's smarter than you, you know it, you know, and generally... When I'd walk into a room, I'd look around, I'd think I'm smarter than most of these people. But (laughs) I get in a room with Ramus, and it's just like, oh shit! Okay, I got to bow my head reverentially here because Mm -hmm. this guy's a lot smarter than me. And so Harold laid down the gauntlet on the first day of writing, and he just said, each of you should be able to write one sketch per day. I'll write two. That's what Harold (laughs) said, and it was just like I looked at him and I thought, okay, well I'll write two as well. And I start watching him, and he had all the tools that he needed to be head writer of a comedy show. He had had been Playboy joke editor for like three years. So he had this catalog of jokes in his head, and he had an amazing memory. And he was a smart guy, and he read a lot, and he had a great reference level. So he was able to pull stuff up and do stuff really, really well. When he left, he was only there one season. And when Harold left, he said he wanted me and Joe to be head writers after him. And he said to me, he took me aside, he said, I want you to do this with Joe. He said, Joe's got the seniority, but Joe's going to quit in about three months. He isn't going to want to do that. He doesn't like the sort of administrative nature and bugging people to write scripts and things like that. You're going to have to do that. And I said, "Okay." He said, I want to give you one little bit of advice. He said, your job as head writer is not to try to make the show conform to your sense of humor. Your job as head writer is to try to take a look at what anyone is working on and try to find a way to help them to make it better. And I thought, well, that's really smart. And that was my sort of modus operandi for head writing. And it was like trying to preserve the very diverse, creative comic sensibilities that were part of that show. And... You know, there's no, there's no single voice in SETV. There's a cacophony of voices of all the different people that are part of it. You know, you want to, you want to water that, make it grow. You want to, you want to encourage that as much as possible. And the last thing you want to do is say, "Uh, I don't think that's very good. Or I think you should do that like this. You know, you, you want to give them a joke in the vein of what they're doing that will make theirs better. And move on and let them do it, you know. So that was the job. And being a head writer for SCTV was more of a traffic cop than being a a sort of a literary mentor, you know what I mean, or a television mentor. It was a, it was more of just trying to get the things flowing, trying to get trying to get the most out of everybody that we could. Like Harold used to make fun of John John Candy because John didn't like to write scripts. John was just, he, he was a fun guy, but you know what I mean? John came up with the idea. This is one of the seminal ideas that helped sell Second City. John came up with the idea of throwing the TVs out the window. It was just like, sick of television, the SCTV. And John, that was John's idea. And that's typical of the way his mind worked. And Harold used to tease John and said, you know, other people bring in scripts and you bring in, some notes that you jotted on a cocktail napkin, and, <laughs> and that was true. But you know what? When I got the job of writing with the, for the show, and I I went to a couple of the writers because w- when we went to the ninety minute show, we couldn't do it ourselves anymore, and so we added other writers. And there were a lot of them were Second City people that we knew. I said to two guys, two writers, uh, John McCanders and Doug Stackler. I said, John hates being in the office. John isn't going to sit in his office and write scripts. He's going to make up stuff. He's going to say he's got to go to the store to get his aunt a present, or he's got to go out and do, he's got to go out and run errands. When he leaves, go with him. Take your legal pads with him and write down everything he says, because your job is to go on on a road trip with John every day when he leaves and come back with some stuff that you can write up as scripts, and you'll get it, because he's funny enough that you'll get it. Just laugh at everything he does and get him, encourage him, to do more and you'll come back with material so you know what i mean it was like that it was like how do you get the most out of john you don't force him to sit in an office and write scripts because he couldn't do that and he would go nuts so you find a way to allow him to do what he does but send a couple of writers with him as scribes and just (laughs) take down everything he said you know
0: that's brilliant Did the show change a lot? Did you guys like the vibe when you moved to NBC for that ninety-minute version? Because now you're on night. You're right. Now you're late night in the U.S. Because you've been mostly Canada syndicated U.S. before that, but now you're. It was still late
1: night. It was always late night, even when it was syndicated U.S. But in the third season, it changed a little bit because Brandon Tartikoff, who was the president of NBC at that time, was watching the show when it was syndicated and he had plans for SETV that we didn't know about at that time so he put SETV and all the ONOs the owned and operated affiliates of NBC in the third season. then all of a sudden we went up from 48 markets to 350 US markets that was a big deal for us and it allowed us a little more money for budgets we went up from 7000 a show and and so it started to get better then then the show went down for a year and They couldn't get any CBC decided They didn't want to do it anymore. And um, and so we didn't know what to do. And I went to L.A. That was when I took the year to write Spies Like Us and and another movie for Joel Silver. And anyway, Rick Moranis and I had connected really well in the third season. And I'd done this show for uh, CBS. And I knew the president of CBS. And I thought, I can't waste an opportunity like that. It's the president of CBS. We got to sell him something. <laughs> so so I said to Rick, let's go in. Let's put a tape of our stuff of you and me as Cronkite and Brinkley and Hope and, and uh, Woody Allen and, and Shake and Bake and something like that. Put it together and try to sell him on a two-hander, the two of us. Because it didn't look like SCTV was coming back after the third season of the half-hour show. So we went and we met with Harvey Shepard and, and we got a deal for a, a show, a two-hander meanwhile stuff's going on in toronto that we didn't know about we're in la and we get a call from john candy john says brand tarnikoff wants to do sctv late night friday nights 90 minutes i was like holy shit 90 minutes it's like snl that's a big deal and john said you guys have got to come back and do it i said well we just sold this thing to cbs he said you got to get out of that come on we got to do this this is great and john had some self-interest in that you know because. John was John was the face. John was the Belushi of SCTV. John was the star, and everybody knew that. So John needed me and Rick to write for him and to get and to be support players. <laughs> so he had a vested interest in calling us back, and we knew that. But it was also John. John was fun to work with. I worked with him on stage, so I knew him all the way back as far as there. And so Rick and I talked, and we said, "All right." So we got out of our deal at CBS, and we went to Toronto. Now it's a 90 minute show. And that was a big change because the network is going to our budget goes up and uh, the network has a vested interest in the show. And they say, you got a musical guest. You can't do 90 minutes of comedy without a musical guest. So then we had to figure out a way to incorporate musical guests in a way that was novel, not just throwing the way they do on SNL. Ladies and gentlemen, the police, you know, we couldn't. We couldn't do that. We had to figure out a, a way of incorporating them in to our little uh, fictitious network that was doing its programming day. And for a 90-minute show, we needed a thread. We needed a story thread that held all the various sketches together. So there was a lot of stuff that had to be done to adapt the show from the half hour to the 90-minute show.
0: That's a big job, 30 to 90 Yeah, it minutes. was
1: a big job. Huge.
0: And television is, especially...
1: Television that kind of television is all consuming. And it's funny, you know. You give it everything you got and you write all the sketches you think you can write. And then guess what? It's Monday and you gotta start all over. <laughs> and write and write a bunch more. I was like, Oh my god, when is this gonna end? So there is a built in burnout factor in all of those shows, you know, the you have a certain number of shows that you can do and then you're just repeating yourself or doing garbage
0: you left at the end of this is that part of the burnout you left at the end of season four
1: well i was burned out yeah as head writer and as as the guy that sort of helped put the pieces of the 90 minute show together and then we got john candy and joe flaherty started writing a movie for universal called going berserk and then a couple of producers that rick and i knew in la said you guys should do a Mackenzie Brothers movie because that's a very popular franchise and we were on the cover of Rolling Stone and Time Magazine. And we thought, all right, well, we'll see about that. So Rick and I started writing a script and then the producer of Second City, Andrew Alexander and Bernie Solins, came to us and said, you guys can't do a, a movie. You're under exclusive contract to us. So we'd done an album and our album went gold then it went platinum and then it went double platinum. We we're like, holy shit, and we made, Rick and I made quite a bit of money off that album, and so we thought, well, we'll hire a writer. We can't <laughs> write it ourselves. We'll hire a writer with some of our record royalty money, so we did that, and then we got a, a script back that was just so wrong for the Mackenzies and didn't capture the voice of the characters and didn't even do what would be a story that so our, uh, we were both rep by Creative Artists Agency, by CAA at that time. And we get the script and read it. It's not Thursday or Friday or something. And the agent sends the script to all the studios to see if he can get a bidding war. And by Wednesday, we had a deal. So Friday, we just read the script for the first time and realize it's wrong. And we can't make this movie because it's not right. We're still on SCTV. And Wednesday comes around, we got a, a deal and an offer from MGM. So now it's like, oh, now what are we going to do? So Rick said, "We're not going. We're not doing this." He said, "I don't want to do it." And I said, "Well, how often do you get a chance to do a movie? You know, how often do you get a movie just handed to you? And we've already got characters that the audience knows. So we've done that awareness stuff that you got to do. That's part of the launch of anything." I said. He said, but the script is all wrong. I said, well, we'll rewrite the script. He said, but they bought this script. I said, I'll bet you they didn't even read it. And I was right. They didn't even read it. There was like, they, you know what I mean? It's like a typical Hollywood thing. Going to shoot the deal. The deal was, here's a franchise with two guys that have got this Grammy-nominated, gold, platinum, double platinum record. They're on a TV show on NBC that's on every week. That's our advertising right there.
0: Right. It's a no brainer.
1: We got a movie. We got a movie script. Put some money in, put some money down and give this a green light.
0: And that's what happened.
1: So we had to leave in SCTV to do it. And I have to hand it to Andrew Alexander. He let us leave. And I thanked him for that. But it was like uh, it was it was difficult.
0: I can imagine because this is probably this comedy family that you have up until this point.
1: And by now, Marty's in the show. And that was just fantastic, as far as I was concerned, because I'd been to gone to college with Marty, and we were such good friends, you know
0: but he was only he was only in the end of season four, and then you left at this end of season four, right? Yeah, so there was a yeah. very small time that you actually were there with Marty.
1: Oh yeah, I know we only overlap for a few, but okay, two two characters that Rick and I played on sctv were pigs pig characters we had pig noses rick had this concept called carl's cuts and the premise was that he was a pig-nosed butcher who was also a film editor so he cut meat and he cut film and hey what's the difference right you cut cut some head cheese you cut some film so he asked me if i would do a character with him and i said yeah but we can't just do it on the set." Let's do a piece. So we wrote this piece, a parody of Deliverance, and it was <laughs> my idea. Was this was that there was this horrific scene with Ned Beatty where he gets raped by these two hillbillies, and they tell him to get down on all fours and squeal like a pig. I had always thought that was absolutely horrific, but funny because it was so horrific. For the same reason that The Exorcist was funny, and I said, "What if we do these pig characters and we get encountered by hid- hillbillies, but they tell?" me as the nabidi guy to get down on all fours and squeal like a man that to me is the reason to do this and rickster and laughing. and he said okay let's do it so one of the things that i always told marty was that marty short was that marty's ears kind of stuck out and he had this weird little irish face and he said if you pull your hair back you look like the mountain boy in deliverance you look like that mountain boy <laughs> so marty's i said to marty Will you be the mountain boy in our Deliverance parody? And Marty was up for anything. And he was, sure. So he gets made up as the mountain boy. He looked exactly like him when he got made up. Oh, man. So we do this parody of Deliverance as the two pig characters. And here's how the two pig characters came about. It's really funny, but sort of sad in another way, because it had a, a bad effect on the producers of Second City. We were going to do a parody of the two producers, Andrew and his partner, Len Stewart. And we got, got made up as all kinds of different people. I Over the years, as a utility player, I got made up as Steven Spielberg and people that I didn't look anything like, you know. Sure, sure. And, and so we went into makeup this day and they had pictures of the two producers and the makeup women were, mar- makeup and hair people were marvelous. But they just looked at those two pictures and they looked and they said, can't do it. <laughs> Their faces are so radically different than yours that we can't, even if we do all, all the prosthetics you need, your heads are going to be twice their size. It's going to be gorgon. It's going to be awful. And Rick and I were, we were smart enough to take their advice. You know, we we said, all right. And then Rick said, well, then just make, up, make us up as the two pigs. So what we didn't know was that the producers were coming in that day because they had heard that we were going to be impersonating them. And they wanted to see our impersonation of them. They come to the set and see Rick and I made up as pigs. And then they think (laughs) that that's our impersonation of them. And to this day, I have never been able to make Andrew believe that we weren't trying to make them look like pigs that we couldn't be made up to look like them. So we just said, oh, just make us, just make us the pigs. Oh, that's so, so funny. Anyway.
0: Your album, Great White North, that you mentioned in passing, which was huge. It was that both your albums and the Strange Brew soundtrack, Juno Award for Comedy Album of the Year. Each one won that. Great White North did not win the Grammy, but... It lost to Richard Pryor live on the Sunset Strip. So if you're going yeah. to lose. On. Yeah, fair gonna, is fair, right? Fair is fair, right? <laughs> on Great White North, your hit single had the uh, Getty Lee, Mr. Canada, Rush. Yeah. And Rick and him went to school together or something like that.
1: Yeah, they were pals. And Rick asked Getty, we could do it. And Rick said, all we can afford to pay you is a 2-4 of beer, <laughs> which is 24 beer. And Getty said, oh, that's good enough for me. So that was part of the promo for the album was us paying getty his two four beer after he finished singing and he's just a great guy that band was just the nicest guys in the world all of them
0: loved and, rush uh, seeing him t- yeah, twice in concert amazing yeah and then your brother musical he did the main theme for the strange bruce soundtrack.
1: track that's right yeah ian's done 20 albums he's a well-known canadian musician and he's done movie scores and stuff like that yeah he's a, he's a really solid musician and can do. All kinds of different things, and has he's still working too. He he's part of a group now with Murray McLaughlin, Mark Jordan, and Cindy Church. They call themselves Lunch at Allen's, and they do live gigs all across the country.
0: That's pretty, it's pretty cool. He got yeah. an ear for music. You got an ear for voices and comedy. So it's just quite a talent pool that your parents produced. <laughs> <laughs> my mom
1: was my mother was very proud. Yeah, so was my dad. Actually, he was a. a a university professor. He taught at the college that Marty Short, Eugene Levy, and I all attended. He was a chairman of the philosophy department. And so he, you know, when he, when the McKenzie brothers became big in Canada, they became just ridiculously big. I mean, Rick and I never expected that. But my dad would wear a takeoff hoser (laughs) t-shirt to his classes his philosophy classes because everybody knew he was the father of doug mckenzie you know and, and he'd get cheered coming in with that so he was good natured about it not embarrassed at
0: all well he yeah. understood the importance of cred and you gave him cred so <laughs> <in>. <laughs> he would walk in he could do anything at that point i thought it was so interesting that the bob and doug mckenzie characters were just created out of necessity because the cbc was like you need to do two minutes of pure canadian stuff and go and then it was just you guys you and rick just kind of riffing it and then it became kind of the most popular sketch
1: that was really ironic and it was ironic because we didn't think it was important and rick and i never wrote the McKin- we never wrote a single great white north sketch they were all improvised we would most of the cast would go home They Shoot them on a Friday or something like that. Pass would go home. Crew would go home. There would just be the switcher upstairs in the control room, the floor director, and a camera, and me and Rick. So we had real beers. We'd like drink happy hour and we literally really cook up back bacon on our little stove. And we did that call that we did. I can't even do it anymore. <laughs> so, but we did that call as kind of a stall to give us time to think of what we were going to do in that one. Because I remember on more than one occasion sitting with Rick on that set and the floor director would count us in. He'd give us a five count to come in. Five, four, three, two, one, and then point. And then we had to go. So I would start with that little loon call. and uh, But I remember during the count on many occasions, Rick turning to me and saying, you got anything? And I would go, nah, let's just go. And one, go. And then we'd have to do it. And...
0: That's amazing, though.
1: Some of them were good, and some of them were stunk.
0: You know <laughs> what I mean? We
1: threw out quite a few. But I, to this day, I wish we'd kept the ones that stunk, because I'll bet you they were funny in ways that we didn't think were funny back then.
0: Oh, I bet they were all all amazing. In, in hindsight, you're comparing yourself against yourself at the moment, but I bet looking back, they'd all be gold. Yeah. Did the rest of the cast have any resentment that these characters had kind of just blown up and taking spotlight and you got a movie, you had left to do a movie? and
1: You would have to talk to them about that. I mean, there was a little bit. There was some stuff that, that I think was genuine fodder for resentment. There was a, a headline on Rolling Stone on the cover, and it just said SCTV's best joke. And it's like Bob and Doug McKenzie. Well, we weren't the best joke on SCTV we were a joke we were a good joke but we weren't the best joke so it was when stuff like that would come up that would be a little bit divisive you know and i think john candy probably suffered more than anyone because as i said earlier he was the face of SCTV he was the star and then when these two characters kind of emerged and got a lot of attention in in media i think that Ruffled his feathers more than the others, to be completely honest. Got it.
0: So Let's just hit hit a few uh, ones real quick. So, Rocket Boy, and it's it's important <laughs> to know that no one knows that you're Rocket Boy. So, just anyone listening, please just you're listening to this in confidence that <laughs> Dave Thomas is Rocket Boy.
1: Well, I worked with two guys on a show called The New Show that Lauren Michaels did between his two stints on SNL. Like Lauren left after i don't know the third season or something like that fourth season and then he did the new show which had a great writing room it was jack handy george myers tom gamble max pross buck henry al Franken, tom davis jim downey it was such a good writing room steve martin john candy everybody contributing so these two guys tom gamble and max pross we're joking around one day, and we came up with this idea Rocket Boy together. And then after the new show, I said, well, let's see if we can sell it. We sold it to Orion. It was low budget, of course. That's my luck on anything starting out. But it was fun to do, and these guys had a real sort of crazy style of writing, and I thought, well, oh, I'll do it. I've never done anything like this before. This would be fun. And so John Candy guessed it on it. Rick Moranis guessed it on it. And uh, yeah, it was fun to do.
0: The new show... It's an interesting crisscross of events, right? So Lauren Michaels leaves Saturday Night Live. Dick Ebersall goes to fill in, which then was the cancellation of the Midnight Special, which is what SCTV filled in on, uh, when they moved to NBC. And then later, so Lauren's not doing Saturday Night Live yet. And then you guys do the new show which was basically him making a new version of Saturday Night Live, basically, which That's right. which, when I was kind of looking at the show, I watched some clips and I was reading about it. It was like, it reminded me of Dana Carvey's Too Funny to Fail documentary. It's like wh- how you had, you mentioned a bunch of the names, but I mean, the musical guests, Pretenders, Randy Newman, Cyndi Lauper, every big name. I mean, your guests, Candace Bergen, Penny Marshall, Steve Martin, Kevin Klein, everyone, Carrie Fisher, John Candy, Catherine O'Hara. It's like it was a who's who of, of who, and And it just tanked in the ratings.
1: Here's what helped it tank. It was on at 10 o'clock at night on a Friday when the young people were the target audience for a show like that were out. So that's not a good time slot for a show like that. And then another reason it tanked was Lauren. Lauren wasn't really committed to the show. Lauren was really trying to get back on Saturday Night Live. And I mean, we started shooting that show on West 57th Street in New York at the CBS Studios. And then Lauren managed to talk NBC into letting him into 8H when Dick Ebersole wasn't using that studio, which is where they shoot Saturday Night Live at Rockefeller Center in Studio 8H. So he's crowding Dick out of his own job as producer of SNL, and, and it's only a matter of time before Lauren comes back, and we could see that. So it was like Lauren's real lack of commitment to that show, and, um, and, and then the time slot. Yeah, it tanked. I remember going into Lauren's office one day, really pissed off. I had the ratings, and I just threw them on his desk. And I said, 66 out of 69. <laughs> 69 shows rated that week, we're 66 in the ratings. I said, not bad for the legendary producer of SNL. I said, what in the fuck are you doing? I cannot believe that you are not concerned about this. And Lauren, one of Lauren's greatest skills is to deflect the anger and rage of his performers and writers. He's so good at that. And he looked at me and he smiled and he said, you know, it's true. These days, instead of thinking about what great comedy sketch I'd like to come up with, I'm thinking about what I'd like to eat that day. Well, I burst out laughing because he totally diffused me. And it was like, I said, come on, man. I said, what what are you doing? And he said, it's all going to come out in the wash. He knew stuff that I didn't know. And as it turned out, like a year later or something like that, I get a call from Warren and he said, I'm going back to I'm going back to SNL and I'd like you to produce. And I said, Well, I'm on something right now doing a show for CBS. And he said, Well, this is an offer, Dave. This is an offer of a lifetime. And I said, Well, I said, You're really the producer of SNL. So are you just looking for like a fall guy in case this goes south that you can blame? <laughs> Well, it's not my fault. Dave Thomas, he's the hes the shithead that wrecked the show. I created a legendary show. Then I get a call from Bernie Brelstein, who was his manager at the time. You got to do this, Dave. It's an amazing show. You got to do it. And then I get a call from Brandon Tarnikoff, who's the president of NBC, and it's like, oh, man. But I honestly didn't want to do it. And I thought, that's Lauren's show. I'm going to still keep doing my thing, things that I like, the things that I want to do. They may not be the biggest, most successful things in the world, but they're mine. They're not Lawrence. They're mine. So I passed. I said, no. Everyone told me I was crazy. My agent left me. You're turning down SNL? I'm sorry, Dave. I don't think I can represent you anymore. I said, well, you never did anyway. So it's oh, just, like, you know, some people say, you know, who's your agent? You know this old joke, right? Who's your agent? I don't have an agent. I'm with William Morris. You know, it's just, <laughs> agents are in the business of doing things for themselves. They're not in the business of wrapping anybody. They're in the business of taking care of themselves.
0: Well, one final Dave Thomas comedy uh Miles, Yeah. like Dave Thomas comedy show. I remember watching this. You know like there's certain bits in your life that just kind of stick in your the back of your head. They just kind of float there and occasionally they pop into your your mind. The dad rap that you did on that show. There's a uh, when I saw it, it just it was so funny, and it's always and so I was looking into that. I rewatched an episode of the Dave Thomas comedy show that you did with John Candy. John Candy was the guest, and the one particular skit was just so funny with John and uh, Teresa Ganzel. Yeah, where you're he tells you you're dying, and then he, he says you're kidding, and then you everyone keeps fake think you all keep one upping each other on <laughs> faking death. I mean, this is a funny show. Was it also just great to be with John Candy again? And
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, that particular sketch played, that was in the style of a lot of improvs that John and I used to do together at Second City in the stage show. So that was an easy thing for us to do because we had real rhythms there, you know. And I mean, John was a guest on the new show too. And I remember my brother Ian saying, It was great to see you playing with John again. Because John was like a big kid. He just liked to play. Comedy was playing to him. You know what I mean? It's like Robert Redford in The Natural, just wanting to play ball. None of the politics, none of the fame, just wanting to play ball. John just liked to play on He liked to do comedy. He liked to make himself and other people laugh. And so we were playing Brezhnev and Gorbachev, I think, in the new show. And we went off book. and my brother Ian said, I remember seeing Buck Henry's face just freeze when he realized you guys aren't doing the script anymore. You're not reading off the cards. You're just flying by the seat of your pants. And he didn't know where you were going. And he had to wait for you to stop talking before he could say his line, you know. So that was fun with John. But, you know, the Dave Thomas comedy show was, you can see on my website, there's a a little version of the opening that I did originally which is what I wanted to do. And CBS didn't want that. I opened the show in a theater in Long Beach and I had an orchestra. I had an audience and then the curtains open and I had an 800, uh, sorry, an 80 foot blue screen behind me onto which I projected a California road going off in infinity to the mountains beyond and a car, I had a Mustang actually on the stage. And I said to the audience, some said, huh, folks? <laughs> <laughs> this isn't going to be like, you know, Saturday night live where you come to a living room set, you know you are there till the commercial break. You know what's going to happen on this show. I said, "Come on, let's take a ride and take a look at our set." So I get in the car, I'm driving and then it's intercut between me out on a California highway driving and the audience. And what I did was I I'm driving along and then I stop and for an armadillo that's on the road and I pick it up and look at it. And then some Mexican banditos come up And they're like, hey, we want some money? And I go, I I don't have any money. And they've all got guns, you know, and they've got the bandoleros. And they're like from um, the Magnificent Seven or the good, the bad, and the ugly. Sure, sure. And and so i say, I don't know, I got, I got like, I think I got like six bucks. And they go, six bucks, six bucks. (laughs) And they're all laughing, you know, and they're going to kill me. And then I go, oh, I know where you can get some money. And I point to the audience behind me and I did a reverse angle and cut the audience the point of view putting the camera in the theater looking out at the audience into that screen so that it looked like the audience. I said there's a couple hundred people back there. They all got wallets they all got money. And the Mexican bandidos look at them they go, ah amigos, vámonos and they ride off into the and and I and I'm like I got out of that one. So they become characters in the show later in the show. They're sitting in the audience and that's the kind of show I wanted to do. You know, I had all kinds of bits worked out with the the audience and the cast and CBS saw this and they went, "No way. We want Dave in studio in a studio in Hollywood with a studio audience and then we want to cut to the sketches. That's what we want the show to be." So that's what the Dave Thomas show ended up being, but it didn't start out that way. It started out as something much more experimental and fun. But I didn't have the clout to get them to do that.
0: Well, I would have let you do it. And I think it's their loss. I think it's, you're welcome. You're welcome. Next time I'm I'm running a studio, first call I make, Dave Thomas. All right. Dave, thank you so much. All this time, it's it's an honor to spend time with you. And it was a pleasure being on your show. Thank you, thank you, thank you. All right, how amazing is Dave Thomas? So generous with his time and sharing all those amazing stories. Definitely check out Dave's new book. There's a link to it in the show notes. You can get it on Amazon. The Many Lives of Jimmy Layton. It's awesome. Also, now's not a bad time to re-watch Strange Brew. If you haven't seen it in a while, dive into some SCTV. So much Dave Thomas you can just bring into your life. You deserve it. You deserve it. Well... I can't believe it. With the interview over, that means episode 200 is over. We've completed 200 episodes, everyone. Quite the milestone. Thanks once again to my special guest, Dave Thomas. And of course, thanks to all of you for coming back week after week. It means the world to me. And I'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Classic Conversations. If you like what you heard, don't be shy and give us a follow on your favorite podcast app. Also, why not go ahead and tell all your friends about the show? You strike us as the kind of person that people listen to. Thanks in advance for spreading the word. And we'll catch you next time on Classic Conversations.